Well, it's my great pleasure to set the ball rolling. My duties are very uh, brief. Well, to first of all, to welcome you all to this uh, like to this uh, session of the Colonial Memorial Trust lecture by uh, George Papandreou, and particularly to thank George for his kindness to the uh, to give this lecture, and um, I thank the LSE and the and the Provost for kindly sharing this occasion also. Um, on behalf of the Trust, uh, I would request uh, uh, Professor Diane Perron to say a few words. So thank you all for coming. Um, as one of the trustees of the Ava Colony Memorial Trust, uh, can I also add uh, my welcome to everyone this evening and to George Papandreou, who will be giving the lecture. Um, I have been asked to say a few words about, the Ava, about Ava Colony and the Memorial Trust. Um, prior to joining the LSE, uh, I taught at City of London Polytechnic, now London Metropolitan University, where I had the great pleasure and privilege of working with Ava Colony. Um, Ava was an economist whose work and passion were concerned with analysing and redressing inequality. After her very sad and untimely death in 1985, Amartya Sen established the trust to commemorate Ava's life and work and to reflect and further her belief in the possibility of social justice. Um, the trust itself is run on the basis of uh, donations and it's managed by colleagues from uh, London Metropolitan University, friends and family, including her children, Indrana and Kabir, and it's chaired by Chris Elvin, who's here tonight and played a role in organising this lecture. Um, the principal activity of the Trust has been to award annual bursaries to economic students at London Metropolitan University who are experiencing hardship uh, in order to enable them to complete their studies. Uh, the Trust also organises lectures uh, linked to Ava's interest. And the first five of these were published in a book uh, which is called Living as Equals, and it includes an essay by Amartya on social commitment and democracy. So on behalf of the Trust, I'd like to thank LSE again for hosting this lecture and hand over to Stuart, who will introduce uh, George Patendray. Thank you. Very many thanks, first of all, to Amartya Sen for being with us this evening and kicking it off, and thanks also to Diane. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, a very warm welcome from me to LSE for this evening's event. I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm the Deputy Director and Provost of LSE. It's a great honour for the LSE to be hosting, for the second time, the Ava Colonna Memorial Lecture. And we're especially pleased that our speaker tonight is George Papandreou, who's not only a former Prime Minister of Greece, but also an alumnus of the school. Uh, so we're especially pleased to have you back with us. Mr. Papandreou is the President of Socialist International, Member of the Hellenic Parliament, and a former President of the Pan-Hellenic Socialist Movement. He served his country as Minister of Education and as Foreign Minister before serving as Prime Minister of Greece 
from the time of PASOK's victory in the October 2009 national election until the formation in November 2011 of a government of national unity to deal with the debt crisis in Greece. And Mr Papadreou's speech tonight will focus on the future of Europe. Just a couple of housekeeping points, please. First of all, if you are tweeting, uh, the hashtag for today's event is at LSEUS. And please, now is the time to make sure that your mobile phones are not switched off, but at least set to mobile. So as usual at LSE, after the event, there will be plenty of opportunity for you to ask questions of our speaker tonight. But for now, please join me in welcoming George Papandreou back to LSE to deliver his lecture, which is entitled A European Dream Deferred, How to Restore Europe's Promise and Potential. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to be back to the London School of Economics and, of course, very grateful to my dear friend Amartya for inviting me to be part of the tribute to his brilliant wife, Eva. I did not have the honor of knowing Eva Kolorny. However, I should highlight some important coincidences. In the midst of the crisis which I had to manage both in Greece and in the context of the European Union, I sought out advice. And amongst the, those who I reached out to was the late economist Tommaso Padua Sciopa. And he graciously offered his help. And we began to work closely together to see how we could handle the crisis to the benefit both of Greece and of Europe. Tommaso Padua Sciopa was called the intellectual impetus behind the euro and the founding father of the new currency. So he was more than appropriate, capable of, to the ta of the task. Unluckily, he passed away, and we lost both a friend and a cherished advisor at one of the most crucial moments uh, of the crisis. Tommaso was the partner of Barbara Spinelli, the stepsister of Eva Colorni. Amazingly, both Eva's stepfather, Altiero Spinelli, and her father, Eugenio Colorni, who was killed by the fascists, were the intellectual impetus behind the Ventotene Manifesto. For those who may not know, the text of the Ventotene Manifesto was considered the basis for the Federalist movement for a united and free Europe. So their contribution has been invaluable in building a different Europe after World War II. All the more impressive is that this text was written in jail. Yes, they had the audacity, while imprisoned, to dream, to imagine a very different world. And I use the word audacity intentionally, because not only their work, but the European project itself should be an ode to the capacity of human beings and our collective will to actually change the world. But isn't this exactly what politics should be? 
a revolutionary idea as the Greeks saw it, liberation from submission to kings, tyrants, or even dogmas. Politics was a liberating concept. Citizens collectively could imagine to be masters of their own fate. In today's 28-member EU, almost half the population that now live in democracies once lived under dictatorships. We in Greece were amongst them. When I returned to Greece in the 1970s after being exiled in Canada and in Sweden, I used to take a train from Thessaloniki to Stockholm via Central and Eastern Europe. I was working there to pay for board and tuition as I was studying here in Alessi. It was a much cheaper way to travel by train. On the way, every few hours, we were stopped by military or police who were checking our passports and our papers. And I used to stop off in some of the cities on the way, and in God knows what kind of language, sign language or whatever, I communicated with other youngsters in those cities, eager to learn, fearful of being heard, hoping patiently for their own freedom. I would travel also from Sweden to the UK by boat, also cheap. But I used to dread the border controls, and I think it was Harwich. They looked at me and they would say, who is this peculiar Greek who's traveled through Eastern and Central Europe with all my stamps on my passport and works in Sweden? They once kept me a full day going through all my bags, my correspondence. Now they do it through the through our Facebook account, so that's different, <laughs> interrogating me until I was released to return to London. So yes, Europe is a very different continent today. In 2003, when Greece held the European Union presidency, I was foreign minister. I remember hosting a meeting of all European foreign ministers on a tiny island called Castellorizo, the easternmost island of Greece. On a clear day, you can see Turkey just a mile away. It was a symbolic location because the EU was extending its borders as never before. We had just signed a treaty in Athens welcoming 10 new members. Eight of them were former members of the Eastern Bloc who had been divided from the rest of Europe for decades. We signed their accession treaty where else in the ancient agora of Athens, symbolizing the foundations of Europe, democracy. And during our presidency, Giscard d'Estaing, heading the convention of our new European constitution, handed over the text to the Greek presidency of the constitution. Our presidency's slogan, Europe, a community of values. The preamble to the constitution highlighted these values. It began with the words of Pericles on democracy, and Article 1 read, The Union is founded on the principles of liberty, democracy, respect for human rights, and fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Turkey, with whom we had only a few years earlier been on the brink of war, was now lining up to join our community of values, breaking the stereotypes that democracies were only the prerogative of Western or Christian cultures. So the mood amongst the European leaders on that sunny day in Castellorizo was truly euphoric. Europe had changed, 
And it was a tribute to the men and women who fought for a free united Europe that we today can walk across this continent in peace. Today, Greece once again is at the helm of a much more symbolic EU presidency. The mood, very different. Ask our citizens what they think about politics today. Few will speak in laudatory terms. Others even question whether democracy is a worthy, efficient system of governance. And at the same time, deep Euroscepticism and a resurgence of nationalistic feelings have become a real force, and not only in the UK. In my opinion, the basic reason for this reaction to Europe is what you have said, Amartya, and I quote, Europe has led the world in the practice of democracy. There are profound issues to be faced about how Europe's democratic governance could be undermined by the hugely heightened role of financial institutions and rating agencies, which now lord it freely over parts of Europe's political terrain, allowing them the unilateral power to command democratically elected governments. In retrospect, it is no wonder there was such a violent reaction to my proposal on a referendum. Actually, to be, to be fair, Angela Merkel supported my decision, but she didn't say so publicly. Uh, and Sarkozy said to me, we will lose the confidence of the markets. I answered, we first need the confidence of our people. So it would appear that Europe's core values, as envisaged by our founding fathers, are under threat. But it's perhaps more pertinent to ask whether or not Europe is even guided by these core principles any longer. I'm not sure that we are, though few in Brussels may admit that. And this has alienated our citizens. So many whom are faced with falling living standards, unprecedented unemployment, and protected recession. Will renationalizing Europe empower citizens again? I believe the opposite. It will only strengthen the global forces Amartya has referred to that have undermined our basic democratic principles. So tonight I'm going to tell you how I believe we as Europeans can reverse this trend, how we can rediscover, reinstate our most fundamental values, but also how we can chart a new vision for the future of Europe, a Europe that transforms itself and transforms globalization by humanizing and democratizing it. But let's begin tonight in Greece. During my time as Prime Minister, I often heard economists and analysts, particularly from across the Atlantic, such as Paul Volcker, Larry Summers, to name two, asking the simple question, how on earth can an economy, that is Greece, comprising approximately 2 2.5% of the GDP of the European Union, nearly cause the collapse of a euro or even push the world into a new global recession? They felt the problem should have been solved very easily. Why not? Well, I always said Greece has a problem, but Greece was not the problem. The economist Danny Roderick puts it quite, quite well. He says there are two narratives. The first one says it's their fault. The fault of the periphery countries, 
the pigs. We borrow too much, too much private or public debt, rigid labor markets, low productivity. The second narrative, it is our common or collective responsibility. We have an incomplete currency union, a lack of banking union, no common fiscal or economic policy, a single currency but multiple bond markets and diverging rates, absence of any legal framework to deal with debt or bankruptcies. All of the above were therefore to blame for contagion and market fears about the euro. But if as many European leaders initially believed Greece was the problem or the periphery was the problem, then the logic went, and that's the importance of narratives, that we alone must carry the burden of adjustment. It was quite convenient. Not only that, misinterpreting the crisis, deep austerity became both a prescription but also a punishment for bad behavior. And this narrative, narrative dominated media. There were a number of problems with this approach. First of all, austerity did not address the real problems of the countries of the periphery, certainly not in Greece. No debt and deficits were the tip of the iceberg, the symptom rather than the underlying cause. In fact, I was brutally honest about Greece's problems, our democratic institutions that had failed us, clientelism rather than meritocracy, politics captured by vested interests, poor allocation of funds, unequal distribution of resources rather than profligate spending by all, a lack of transparency from taxation to welfare spending. In fact, the Brookings Institute has looked at the relationship between transparency and deficits. They found that if Greece was as transparent as, let's say, Sweden, we could reduce our deficit by eight percentage points of GDP. So yes, democratic, accountable institutions do matter. The priority of the Troika and our creditors should have been on reforms rather than austerity. Yes, we needed to be responsible fiscally, but we should have targeted reforms as a priority. So pushing through difficult changes during a deep recession is even more difficult, almost impossible politically. Gerhard Schröder, the former German chancellor, often told me that he could never have implemented structural reforms in the midst of grinding austerity. And as you know well, Germany had a difficult adjustment process after the reunification. It took two decades to adjust. Would they be able to achieve what they did under immense financial and political pressure or a prolonged recession, with half of Europe bashing them with negative stereotypes, something which, of course, undermined the sense of solidarity and mutual respect so vital to solve our common problems? As with Germany, peripheral countries also need the time to transform their economies and governance systems. But the markets did not give us time. But this is where Europe failed to respond in an effective way. Had Europe, particularly the stronger Eurozone countries, sent a strong signal to the jittery post-Lehman markets, had Europe said, don't worry about our sovereign bonds, the crisis might have ended right there. In any case, it certainly would have been a much more manageable crisis, 
certainly less costly for all of us, included, including our creditor nations. Things really turned around when Mario Draghi, the new head of the European Central Bank, made a simple statement proving that political will and a strong European response could tame markets into serving the common good. Draghi simply said that the ECB would do whatever it takes to protect the euro. Then Spain and Italy were on the verge of asking for loans from the European Stability Mechanism, the ESM. Instead, with an agreement that they follow an adjustment program, the ECB boosted their credibility in the bond markets as we were reforming, as they were reforming uh, their economy. If that had been done in March 2010 for Greece, when we actually implemented a similar program approved by the European Union, we would not have needed a bailout. I said time and time that Greece is not asking for handouts or bailouts. I didn't exactly like to be a prime minister begging around the world for, for money. We All we needed, really, was the political support of our European partners so that we could continue to access the bond markets. But at the time, there was no such political will from Europe. In fact, the way Europe handled the debate around private sector involvement in future defaults, the so-called Deauville decision, only created more fear and higher spreads for the periphery. Another factor that exacerbated the crisis was the endless speculation about a Grexit, a Greek exit from the euro, something which could have been ended had Europe said very simply, no. Imagine a country that does not know if it will keep its currency. What would you do? Well, you would start taking your money out of the banks. You would stop spending. You would, the banks would stop lending. Investors would wait to see what would happen. Our economy simply froze. Not for one month, but for three years. Well, despite all these difficulties, despite the fact that Greece was the icebreaker in uncharted waters, I'm proud to say that Greece has made huge progress, both in reducing the deficit and in tackling our deeper structural problems. Let me quickly give you some statistics. I don't want to bore you with numbers, but I think these are quite impressive. In the last four years, the Greek deficit dropped from 15.6% of GDP to 2.2%. In the last four years, Greece has implemented revenue and spending cuts that account for more than 27% of GDP. In terms of, let's say, the United Kingdom economy, that would mean a total of about 400 billion pounds. We have gone from a primary deficit of 24 billion to a small primary surplus. But this is the biggest and fastest adjustment by any OECD economy on record. In recent years, the OECD consistently ranks Greece number one, the most responsive country in adopting its growth-friendly recommendations. So is Greece on track? Yes, Greece should emerge from recession in 2014. But it has been and will continue to be a long and hard road with sacrifices often unjust and with high unemployment. Well, Greece has its problems like any other country, 
and this crisis has forced us to face them head on. Despite all the pain and the injustice of some of the measures we had to take, the soaring youth unemployment, Greece will emerge from this crisis a very different country and hopefully in a very different Europe. One may call it a success that Greece avoided bankruptcy and that the euro is out of the intensive care unit. However, the crisis has revealed fault lines we need to face up to. First of all, we have, a, we have created a self-inflicted political crisis. We could have avoided it, and it's a crisis of democracy. Secondly, our conversations have been dominated by stereotypes and prejudices. Nor was the, the, the European Union was not created for a moral crusade between competing nations. That has undermined our ability to work together to find most effective solutions. Even worse, it's undermined the European project itself. Of course, we each have our national economic interests. They are legitimate, and recognizing them is a sine qua non for win-win solutions. But as the political debate is captured by simplistic caricatures, uh, the lazy Southerners or the punishing Northerners, we have become divided. The, consequence of this, uh, the consequences of this dangerous blame game are clear for all to see. Extreme nationalism and populism on the rise, linking this with xenophobia and racism. The European project is under fire. So rather than try to hide these challenges, let us speak openly about them. And I believe we have a simple choice. Either we take bold steps towards a more united Europe, or we will begin to splinter. We must choose either deeper cooperation or an organized unwinding of the European Union. I myself am a firm believer that we need more Europe, not less. But it is worthwhile to put the question bluntly. Why Europe? First of all, consider this. In 2050, not one European country will qualify for the G8, according to a recent study by PricewaterhouseCoopers. Germany will be ninth behind Mexico and Indonesia. The UK will be tenth with Turkey, Nigeria, and Vietnam close behind. But the EU28 as a whole will still be vying with the United States for the world's second largest economy. The European Commission looked at the global balance of power in 2050 also. It concluded that unless we choose what they call an EU renaissance, deeper political, economic, and military integration, and far-sighted investment in research, innovation, and green growth, the European Union will lag far behind the U.S. and succumb to a vicious circle of progressive decline. Secondly, unless we stand together economically, socially, and politically, Europe will be unable to confront global problems and defend European values in solving them. And today our democratic principles are challenged by a globalizing, unfettered economy, but also by people struggling to gain their freedoms or strengthen their freedoms from Ukraine to the Arab Spring in our neighborhood. We have a globalized economy, but we do not have a global governance system to regulate that economy effectively. What that means is that our mainly national democratic institutions and politics look impotent. That is a challenge to democracy. 
Let me be more specific, and I speak from my experience. The unprecedented concentration of wealth and power has captured politics and is corrupting our democracies. Deep inequality is an issue Eva Colorni fought, fought against with passion, have tipped the power balance in our societies and undermined democratic institutions. Many analysts, from Joe Stiglitz to Bob Reich and many others, have attributed the recent financial crisis to this disparity between the 99% and the 1% in both income but also in political power. As a result, citizens feel powerless, frustrated by conventional national governance, alienated by the political establishment that seems unable or unwilling to control these new forces. In a world of globalized capital, it is possible, is it possible to also have globalized governance or democracy beyond borders? Institutions that will guarantee legitimate representative decisions for the planetary public good. Institutions that can regulate financial capital, make financial institutions more accountable, set global standards to deal with, for example, tax evasion or tax avoidance, which is robbing our societies from vital resources which could go to research, education, welfare, and green growth. Essential steps to make globalization work in the public interest rather than in the interest of a tiny global elite. Well, I believe the European Union remains the best bet and potential to become a model for global transnational governance while maintaining our core values. But let me go back again to ancient Greece. Democracy was not simply elections. It was a much deeper concept. It was seen as a disruptive force guaranteeing that power was not concentrated in the hands of a tyrant, that power was not abused, or that power was used for the common good. Today, the hubris of the powerful know few boundaries. It is hubris when financial institutions privatize their profits while socializing their losses. Where, according to Oxfam, 85 families alone have as much wealth as the bottom 50% of the world's population. Or when security agencies are today able to monitor our every move. Back in the days of Spinelli and Colorni, the struggle for social justice in our nations led to a collective bargain between workers, employers, and the state. That guaranteed social security, participation, equal access to education, welfare, and health care. Today, we face a paradox. Uh, it's the paradox that we, although we have vast resources and knowledge, capacity, capacity to make poverty history, we are not using them for the common good. Very simply, capital can fly, hide, find havens in this globalized economy. Its allegiance is not to a nation, but to profit. This is where Europe can play a crucial role, humanizing and democratizing globalization. Spinelli, ahead of his, always ahead of his time, believed that Europe would be the first stage for global democratic governance. That does not mean that it, is, that it will be in any way easy, because democracy in a city-state is very different than democracy across national cultural, ethnic, or racial borders. 
It's no wonder that the German intellectual Jürgen Habermas has proposed a European demos and has developed the concept of allegiance not only to one's heritage, national heritage, or nation, but to a European constitution. He calls it constitutional patriotism, or I might call it a patriotism to values, to our common values. But is this not the essence of the European challenge? Is this not exactly what the European Union meant to those who dreamed of it? I believe Europe can wait no longer. Europeans can wait no longer. It is obvious that we are witnessing a rebalancing of power. And this may take on the form of struggle for global supremacy, Asia, Africa, the BRIC countries, emerging powerhouses. But in this new balance of power, which certainly will will exist, what values will characterize and dominate our global society. Europe has historically been a force of good in the world, but our impact on the world depends on the success of our model of governance. And today, that has been called into question. So allow me to to have the audacity and make a number of proposals in finishing this speech. To see politics as the power to imagine a different world. I say that because today politics looks much more like a balancing act on a trapeze, where we politicians have to balance very different weights and and, and, uh, issues, and any wrong move could be precipitous. We get good at it, using media, polling, speeches, sound bites, but that is not what politics should be. So what could be some of the things we need to do for a different Europe? First, I think we cannot easily continue with Monet's method, no matter how brilliant it was. Uh, That was to incrementally change Europe to build what I might call Trojan horses, if you like, such as the euro, that are incomplete and avoid looking at the political issues head on, but that somehow carry Europe into the future. We need to make more bold moves. Secondly, Europe can no longer be a project created and run by elites, or that's at least how people feel about Europe. Project Europe must be owned by its citizens. Finally, Europe must be able to deal with the major uncertainties and challenges of our time, to rise up to the issues that will dog and threaten our existence. And climate change will be our biggest challenge. So let me give you a few more specific ideas. Well, first of all, I think we still have a long way to go before we have a real fiscal and political union. But before we reach these goals, we need to have a definitive solution to the crisis, which is still ongoing, by doing whatever it takes. We must move on issues such as the banking union. I would further propose a grand bargain for the countries under adjustment programs, or the peripheral countries. Debt relief in exchange for deep reform. Secondly, we need to reassess the development strategy across the European Union. Because right now, the imbalances between North and South are only getting worse, and the South is not only in deep recession, 
but it also is losing, it, losing its productive capacity for the future. Amartya Sen, Joe Stiglitz, and uh, Professor Fitoussi have worked on new indices of what growth should look like and what societies should be, how societies should be measured in the future. Amongst them, of course, are issues such as well-being, equality, but also sustainability. So I would say, let's look for a European Green Deal carried by the momentum of member states who are already setting globally ambitious renewable energy targets. Building on these successes, Europe can become an engine for green growth. We can leverage capital through project eurobonds to invest in renewable energy grids, green transportation, information infrastructure, but also in human capital, in education, research, and innovation. And this would have a multiple effect. First of all, Europe would take the lead on the most crucial issue humanity is facing, which is, a climate, which is climate change. Secondly, it would give a new purpose to Europe and inspire hope in a younger generation today alienated from the European project. Third, Europe would become competitive by investing in quality rather than increasing inequality and would help complete the infrastructure for a true single market. Finally, Europe would create new, high-tech, future-oriented jobs. I say this because Germany's success, its vast current account surplus, more than even China has, has come with a price. It's been a race to the bottom in the labor market, which is why the recent introduction of a minimum wage is so crucial, not just for Germany, but also for Europe. Depressed domestic demand, which absorbs demand from the rest of Europe, low levels of investment which threatens future competitiveness. I don't believe this is a model that we can adopt, not only for other countries, not only for Europe, but even Germany. Sooner or later we'll see this as not the success of a model it so believes. Faced with increasing global competition, should Europe really emulate emerging markets that have low wages, little or no safety nets, no collective bargaining, few if any environmental standards, societies deeply divided between haves and have-nots, I believe this is not a viable or sustainable model. Not for us, not for emerging markets for a long time. So we need to invest in quality. And quality in Greece, for example, would mean investing in new forms of high-quality tourism, agricultural products, fisheries, construction materials, high-tech startups, and renewable energy. A third point which I would like to leave with you is we need to open up the debate on institutional changes in the European Union. Sometimes these debates have been very boring or very obtuse. But um, I believe we need to move forward in a more imaginative way. Altiero Spinelli could be called prophetic when he warned that the old privileged classes will attempt to rebuild the nation-states in order to (coughs) regain the balances of power and their favorable positions by targeting patriotic populist feelings. So what he was saying is rather than capturing our citizens' emotions through populism, let us imagine ways to create institutions and policies that empower our citizens. With European elections coming up in May, now is a good time to think long and hard about where the EU is going 
and what kind of union we want to participate in. An increasingly hot topic here in the UK, where Eurosceptics are gaining ground in an in-out referendum, which is on, in the cards. I believe what Europeans want is a system that protects them from the imbalances and inequalities of globalization, a system that works in their interests, a system that creates equal opportunities, a system in which they have a voice, a system in which they have a stake. And that begins with democracy and the need to democratize European institutions. Well, we may need to give more power to Brussels if we want to integrate further, but it, only if we do so democratically. So I would throw out a few ideas. Why not elect a, directly elect a president of the European Union, an accountable leader to our citizens who can legitimately speak on behalf of the European people? Why not a two-chamber European Parliament on one is being a representative of citizens, the other of nations? Why not tap into the unprecedented creativity and expertise and power of our citizens in Europe? European-wide referenda, online deliberation, crowdsourcing. These are better ways to use the Internet than to spy on our citizens. More rotation in office, removing the undue influence of wealthy donors and politics. These are only a few ideas about how we can reclaim democratic governance and redistribute power to the people. Citizen juries were an essential part of the ancient Athenian democratic process and policy making, and they have been revived in many locations around the world. Why not use them in Europe for deliberating about our common European issues and problems? Why not fight racism and xenophobia by giving migrants and refugees a real say? Let us create a European citizenship for those outside our 28 members, but yet resident in the European Union. Instead of a Greek or a British or a German or Swedish citizenship, they could become a European citizen with rights to vote in European and local elections, empowering them and protecting them, integrating them, and may, they may be the first bona fide Europeans. But before I end, and because of the huge unemployment, I have proposed what I call an Erasmus program for the unemployed. In the words of Monet, who said if he were to start again, it would be with education, let us create a voucher system for each unemployed citizen to choose to train and learn in any EU educational or training institution. Dear friends, the Nobel Committee was quick to remind us only a year ago, a year or so ago, of the importance of our project. They were honoring such women and men, the Colonies and the Spinellis, and they were also sending out a warning. Don't abandon this project. If we do not want to abandon this project, we need to change our politics. From a politics of fear to a politics of imagination and hope from a politics of division to a politics of understanding and debate, from a politics of polarization to a politics of cooperation, from a politics of elitism to a politics of civil participation, from a Europe of nations to a Europe of peoples and citizens. And we mustn't forget 
Europe remains our best chance to govern our globe in a sustainable way, humanizing globalization, democratizing global capital, fostering the common values that will allow us to sustain our environment, our peace, and our prosperity. If not, globalization will undermine the basic principles on which European democracy was built. Thank you for your attention. very much for that very interesting presentation. So we've got about 40 minutes now for questions. I think we're going to start with individual questions. If there are a lot, hands are going up already. We'll go to threes. Just three basic rules, please. First of all, wait for the microphone to come to you. If I call you. Second, please say who you are. And thirdly, ask a question. Don't give a speech. Thank you. So, okay, I'm going to be shameless and start with Lord Giddens in the front row. <laughs> then I will be much more democratic. <laughs> uh, well, I'm Tony Giddens, previous director of the LSE. I'd like to say just um, how good it is to see you back here. Thank you very much for coming. I'm giving a tour, which I have to say, as I just said to your noble wife here, I agree with almost every point you made. But the issue to me is how do you really push these things further and how do you give them concrete shape so could I ask you what you think the obligations of Germany are to the rest of Europe, especially to the South? Do you think that the euro can be stabilized in the long term without some form of mutualization of debt, no matter how hedged around it might be? If that's the case, could Germany ever be persuaded to endorse such a proposal? Because at the moment, the leadership seems to put it mildly rather reluctant to do so. But for myself, I can't really see how the euro could be stabilised in the long term without some form of acceptance of solidarity. If you have economic solidarity, then some of the other forms of solidarity you're arguing for would very possibly follow. It's, it's a very good question, and um, I would say that Germany, or more accurately, a good part of the German leadership, political leadership, has painted itself into a corner on this issue of Europe. While philosophically, politically, if you talk to Germans, they will talk about a deeper integration and a future Europe and so on, but the narrative that dominated their media and some of their politicians and some of their top politicians uh, also used the same rhetoric was that um, how can we, who have put ourselves, who have put our house in order, have done our house Aufgabe, as they say in German, I've learned that word, um, uh, how can we be paying for these profligate, lazy, uzo-drinking, zorba-dancing Greeks? Well, um, first of all, that is a false, a false um, argument, because... When I heard, first heard that, I looked up statistics in the OECD and I found that the Greeks worked more hours than everyone else in the European Union. Um, I think now someone else has overcome us, but the problem now is not how many hours we work, but whether we have work. Um, but I also understand from the German point of view that they don't want to be the paymasters of, of Europe. They want to 
They want to see that we do put our houses in order. In order. But that's not enough uh, alone. We need to look at, the, at our individual nations, but we also need to see how this European Union will, will work. The European Union will work. And I think, um, as I said earlier, the, uh, they are paying more today for the way they handled, or we collectively handled the crisis, than if we had pooled our risks or pooled our strengths. If in the beginning we had said, for example, let's guarantee, let's create some kind of a method of guaranteeing bonds of the member states of the European Union, or let's have the ECB do what it did, whatever it takes, pooling the risk in a sense, or creating euro bonds, um, which is not a blank check and does not need to be a blank check, we would, we would have stopped the crisis. I had the, I'm not an economist, full disclosure, even though I did come here to, I was a sociologist, um, but I had to learn much about the bond markets very quickly. And <laughs> I, I reached out to many in the bond markets, all kinds, from all sides, uh, of good and evil, if you like, and uh, I very quickly came to the conclusion that had Europe really been very uh, staunch and strong in its response with the markets, the markets would have been quiet. That's what I was hearing also from the United States. They're saying, what are you doing? Why are you letting this getting out of hand? Um, for example, I'll give you just one more example, too. Uh, the banking union. I hear again and again now from the European Union, we will not put our banks at risk uh, and our money at risk for the banks of the South. Well, we don't, we must not forget that the banking crisis did not being, begin in Southern Europe. It began in New York, Wall Street. And then it went to the UK and then to other major banks in Europe. So this is not a North-South divide, but that is the narrative we have to break. I also think we have to break the narrative there's a, the issue of the transfer union. The Germans fear that they will be paying. What if we talk, and that's why I say, let's stop, stop talking about our nations and start talking about our citizens. There are citizens in Greece that are rich. There are citizens in areas in Greece that are prosperous. Um, there are areas in Greece that are poor, and there are citizens in Greece that are in poverty. We need to look at our citizens as individuals and see how we help them. So let's say an Erasmus for the unemployed would be, yes, would be a transfer, but it wouldn't be a transfer from one nation to another. It should be a transfer from the European Union to citizens. Uh, in the end, pooling uh, our strengths will make us much stronger. So we have to find ways, and it's not easy, to permeate the sort of barrier the, that right, exists now in the media and, uh, and, and many, much of the political discussion in, in Germany that it is in their interest in the end that we do pool not only our risks, but we'll be pooling our strengths. I would say, actually, we have already pooled our risks. We now need to pool our strengths. Okay, uh, we'll come over this side. We'll go up to what looks like LSE Apple Corner at the top. There's a gentleman there. Yeah, you, you, you hand up, please. Yeah. And we'll take one more on this side, and then we'll work our way through the middle. A gentleman there. Three, lady there as well. 
good evening. My name is uh, Timo Klein. I'm a graduate student in political economy of Europe at the European Institute here at LSE. Um, I'm also a Dutch citizen. Now you've been talking, Mr. Papandreou, about political legitimacy in Europe. Now the reality in in, in the Netherlands and um, some other creditor countries is that debt relief for countries like Greece, but also other big countries, is not a serious topic in the political debate. Now, do you think that the resistance of the political leaders in these creditor countries to seriously discuss topics as debt relief is in line... What? Sorry, is the, is the, do you think that uh, the political leaders in these kind yes. of creditor countries lack... Um, the political leadership to sort of convince the electorate of the necessity of debt relief, or do you think that it is a democratic legitimacy that they're resisting to debt relief in the Eurozone, when the electorate is so much against debt relief? Yes, sure. Okay. Uh, there's a lady here, I think, and then there's a gentleman there. Um, Two-thirds of the way down, please. Hello, um, my name is Evita Sienghella. Kalispera, Kiriprothipurye. Thank you for your speech. I would just like to ask, since you are so adamant that this was a problem uh, of a system, a, a systemic problem that should have been addressed like that, then why during your, uh, pri- while you were a prime minister, didn't you pursue a European solution to the problem and invited the IMF in the conversation as well? Thank you. Thank you. There's a gentleman there. Good evening. Good evening, Mr. President. Uh, my name is... I'm here. My name, <laughs> my name is Antonios Maropoulos, um, uh, class of uh, 2012, LSE. Um, I'd like to ask you, please, the restoration of Europe's uh, promise requires the weakening of the uh, extremist sentiment, right and left, which was empowered by the economic climate and by years of ineffective uh, policies. How do you believe this weakening can be achieved practically in the short term, uh, if it can? Thank Thank you. you. Okay, well, first of all, on the issue of the creditor countries, um, I would say that that I can absolutely understand that the um, taxpayer in um, Germany, Holland, uh, France, or wherever else, uh, saying, uh, you know, this is my money, and uh, I would expect our politicians, whom I have elected, uh, to defend this money, and we want our money back, with some interest anyway. And um, although initially the interest was very high, but it's much lower now. (laughs) But um, that looks at one one angle of the problem. Today, the... I remember when... when, um, just to sort of combine the other answer about the IMF, I never asked for the IMF to, to come in. It was Angela Merkel who was adamant to have the IMF in. As a matter of fact, I believe she wanted the IMF for two reasons. One, that she no longer trusted the commission because it had not done its job very well in monitoring Greece. Um, and secondly, it fe- she felt that it had, it had the technical expertise. I think she also felt that whatever the IMF would say was sort of an independent body outside the European Union, so she could go to her electorate and say, listen, this is not the commission which I can influence, this is somebody else who is, and therefore we have to follow. So I would say that 
if we do want to follow what the IMF is saying, then we have to, and they are saying, first of all, that they have made mistakes, and they are understandable. This was a unique situation. First of all, unique for, for Europe. No one knew how to deal with the debt situation, this debt, the possibility of a bankruptcy. Uh, and I would say there was a lot of ignorance and therefore mistakes at, at the high level of leadership. But even the IMF, for good or for bad, whatever their policy, they had never dealt with a country within a currency union. So what has happened is Greece was, as I said, the icebreaker. A lot of mistakes were made uh, concerning the Greek program. So I would say that if we really are all in this together, we should say, okay, we should all bear some of the burden of these mistakes. Not simply to allow for Greece to become again a profligate, uh, you know, spending country. But what I say is a grand bargain. What we really need, and I think what all Europeans would be happy with if Greece becomes a success story. And Greece can become a success story. We can clean up our act. We can become a more transparent. We are already becoming much more transparent. We put everything online, all our, our expenditures. We are making major changes. Greece can become a success story for Europe and in our global economy. So this is why I think we need to get away from the, uh, from the, the, the narrative of, you know, north against the south, this country against that one. These are common problems, and we've made common decisions on this. Again, I, I would just say in the IMF, when I did become prime minister and we were facing the markets, and the markets were saying to me that you may at some point reach bankruptcy, I had nowhere to go. We did, had no mechanism in the European Union or in the Eurozone, no mechanism. But yet, being in the Eurozone, I really couldn't go to the IMF. So we had to create something. Uh, and um, there was a compromise, as most decisions in the European Union. And the compromise was to create a mechanism where Europe and the IMF um, would fund and, and also monitor this program. But I had, I had expressed very clearly my, my preference that it would be a European a mechanism, and um, I assume that sooner or later this will, this will happen. We will have a European monetary fund with our own uh, standards and, 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 and methods and funding, but uh, that was not in the cards at that time. Now, as far as extremism is concerned, um, I, th I, I think that, you know, very often when you listen to some of the extreme, I don't know if that's always the best of words, but the more anti-European parties, uh, they talk a lot about renationalization, national sovereignty, and so on. But I really think that if Europe stood up or, or to, its, uh, to its capacity, used its capacity in dealing with problems which are global, from tax havens to climate change to the competition with emerging markets in a way which would create employment in Europe, if we were able to empower our citizens to have more of a voice, civil society, 
um, different NGOs, uh, local governments, if we could empower, uh, using the Internet also, in really getting our citizens involved in the decision-making and in, in the politics of Europe, I think quite quickly you would see a dissipation of the extreme uh, reaction. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons I had thought of a referendum was I, I was saying, listen, um, this is something we have to do together. We as a society have to take a decision if we want to follow this program and stay within the euro. If we don't, we can reject it. But we will own this program, and it's our decision, how we will own whatever decision we make. Had we had the referendum, I won't get into the details why it didn't take place. If you need to, I can say a few words. But had we done that, I think we would have had much less extremism and populism in Greece. Because now everybody, or at least at that time, everybody could say, I am the defender of the, of the people, and uh, I know I have a solution, and, I have, and this is wrong, and that's right. And... Um, that was easy to say when we had to take the decisions as, as a government and everybody else could, could say they were, we were wrong. So I, I had the people spoken. I think then everybody would say, well, this is the will of the Greek people, whatever the decision was to be. If it was to follow the program, then I think people would have said to the more extreme groups, well, let's finish up with the program as soon as possible. Let's have this consensus. Let's create this consensus. We would have already created a sense of ownership. And I think we would have been more quick in, in solving many of our instructional problems, which we have still to face. Uh, we'll, we'll take the middle right at the front then. Thank you. And then two people right here near the front as well. Thank you. Vasilis Mastriotis, European Institute and Hellenic Observatory. Um, you mentioned a few times in, in different occasions that, that had the European Union stepped up and either bailed out Greece or provided political support, the problem would be much smaller. And of course, you're right. And, and you know, we have been in the crisis that we, we are, both Greece and, and the Eurozone. Um, I want to ask you in return, though, do you think that had Europe done that, had Merkel and, and, and the Eurozone done that, your government would have been enabled or less likely to implement any of the reforms uh, that, that are needed? And keeping in, keep in mind also that many of the reforms that you tried to implement have not actually been implemented or had not been implemented by the time, by the end of 2011. Thank you. I mean, if we can, just three yes, of course. together. So we'll come forward from the gentleman with the black jumper. Um, thank you for your speech. My name is Yanis Korkovalos, and I'm a graduate student at the European Institute. Um, so, having been educated at the European School of Brussels, now the European Institute here, I've been always told that the European dream, the European Union, is about hmm. peace, about prosperity, about collaborating with people, and about people and the public having a voice. So, in other words, participatory democracy. In other words, referendums. So um, I think this is very much in line with um, your November 2011 call of a referendum uh, during the G8, where you said, if I'm right, the Greek people are wise and are capable of making the right decisions for the benefit of a country. So my question is, um, what constrained you from doing the same in May 2010 
In other words, is there a um, limit to participatory democracy? Thank you. Thank you. Right in front of you. Yes, then. No, you first, please. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Sana Musharraf, and I'm originally from Pakistan. I'm a student of maths. I'm taking a master's course in law and accounting here. Uh, you have very beautifully pro projected an altruistic political picture of Europe in your speech, sir. However, um, forgive me for my naivety um, about your politics and uh, the customs, but I'm just intrigued to learn what is actually the biggest resistor that fragments Europe or the European Union, and as a consequence, it has social, cultural, and economic and political uh, implications. Thank you very much. Thank you. One more, I'm giving you four, unfortunately, yes. And then we'll come yes, to the next, yeah. My question is a bit related to the one that was just put. My name is, by the way, it's Helene Palikini, I'm a retired person. Um, in fact, the, the financial crisis has, uh, create, has opened a Pandora box in Greece, and now we just really have seen an amazing increase in racism, um, we have seen the creation of a golden dawn, which was almost uh, non-existent before, uh, achieving these amazing heights. Um, and of course, all that is the result of unemployment, declining also in uh, the, the level of uh, GDP and so on. I would like to ask you, how optimistic are you that these problems can be resolved and how they can be resolved with uh, the, the end point of the crisis? Well, the, um, first of all, on the first question, uh, Vasilis put that um, had, had the European Union come in, stepped in more uh, powerfully, would that have taken the pressure off Greece to make changes? Uh, I think there was a balance there. Actually, when we... Um, we, we had our first adjustment program without any memorandum and so on, which was on our own volition in cooperation with our institutions in the European Union. We had very positive remarks from everybody in Europe. And I went to Angela Merkel and I said, now I need a statement. And she said, no, no, the markets will understand. And I think what she was thinking in her mind is, you know, well, let's keep the pressure on Greece. The problem is that that had a number of, of, of problems. First of all, that um, that created more contagion in Europe, greater problems, and in the end, created a need for even bigger intervention. It also created uh, much more pressure on Greece. So I think there is a tipping point where you can say, yes, some pressure is needed, and a point where you go beyond, where then you start having other phenomena. Uh, I felt that I did not have legitimacy, and I needed to go to the Greek people. Um, uh, there were many different groups that became very extreme, and we have like the Golden Dawn and so on. So you see that society starts to truly react in, in a very negative way. And I, I contrast that because actually the first year of the of the of the austerity program, uh, where we we was I would say much um, less austere um, 
although we made major changes, the, uh, there was quite a, lar- a large support. People realized, okay, we must adjust, we must change, and maybe this is an opportunity, this crisis is an opportunity. And, uh, and, the, um, and actually, we were doing quite well, uh, even in... Uh, there was, there was, uh, we were considered the poster child of, of the European Union. But at some point, the pressure became so, much, so big that it was unbearable. I wouldn't say unbearable. I mean, we've, we've borne it. I mean, we've, Greek people have been able, and it's, it's amazing that the Greek people have borne such, such, such great pain. Uh, and, and, um, but what, what, uh, what, we were able to, what we were able to do is to, to create a, a, a wider consensus in the initial stages that this is for the, for the good of Greece also. So I don't at all say that we would have wanted to have um, simply forgotten about this, forgotten about our problems. We did have to deal with our own problems. And that's what we need to do also today. I think there's a second point to this, is that the problem of the, and I mentioned in my speech, the problem of the Troika is that because of the pressure of the creditors, that that was prioritized was the fiscal problem. And I call that the symptom not the root cause. So it was cut, 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 more and more revenues. Uh, let's cut the deficit, which we did. We're in record time. But um, that also did not give us the impetus to, uh, or it undermined, if you like, the dynamic for the deeper structural changes. Had the Troika come and said, okay, we have a few more years for dealing with the, the deficit, but what we want is to prioritize the structural changes. That would have been much better, and I would have wanted that myself. Uh, and and I will just give you an example that that would have also helped even in the question of the deficit. I'll give you one small example. We know that we knew that there was corruption that's not only in Greece uh, or in the medical sector. The um, uh, doctors were getting kickbacks from the international pharmaceutical companies to prescribe extravagant and very costly um, prescriptions and, and treatments. So we decided that maybe we should try the best way would be e-governance, put all prescriptions online, caring for privacy, but we would know what the prescription, what the treatment was and why it was what type of ailment the first reaction from the doctors was, uh, we can't do this. I said, why? Because uh, we don't know how to use computers. <laughs> so uh, we decided in one pension fund and, uh, to try an experiment. And I said, okay, any doctor that does not use a computer, we sever their contract. In two weeks, 95% of the doctors learned computers. <laughs> but the result was 30% cut in costs in medical care in the medical and the cost of, of prescriptions, 30%. So this is where I think there was a lost opportunity for Metroica to the tax system the same. If you have an inefficient tax system and you raise taxes, it's not necessarily going to make it efficient. We needed to put our effort in, in efficiency. It would also be, be given a sense of, of, of justice and that everybody was taking the, you know, everybody was paying for the part of this crisis in the right way. So I think that that is another problem which we had. 
Um, going to the question of participatory democracy, I, 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 I referenda are one way. There's not the only way for participatory democracy, but they are one way. Uh, and I don't always would, I wouldn't always prescribe referenda for everything. But um, in May 2010, I think there were three reasons why we didn't. Well, three reasons why we didn't go to a referendum. First of all, was a technical reason. Uh, which you may not know. It's, I don't want to get into this, but our Constitution allowed us to have a referendum or prescribed the possibility of a referendum, but it needed to have a law on how we would actually uh, implement a referendum. And we didn't have a law. Since 1975, we have had no other referendum. So there was no law. So we had to sit down and discuss how a referendum would take place, who would participate, uh, what would be uh, a valid uh, a percentage of, uh, of, of citizens participating, how, would, how, how, how many would validate it. In some countries it's 20%, in some countries it's over 50%. Uh, how would it be organized, uh, the time span, and so on. These were different things. So we started working on that, so we didn't really have time. When we got the first loan, we had two days before we would have gone into bankruptcy. So we didn't really have time. Now, this, of course, is a question for democracy. We are, you know, the markets were pressuring us more than our democratic institutions could actually um, absorb. And that is a question of democracy. So there is a question there. The second reason was that we had just been elected. So we did have a, uh, a, a, a mandate. And it was a mandate for change. Some of you who are Greek may remember the slogan, Either we change or we sink. We were sinking at that time. Um, the, third, the third reason was that um, we were hoping that by implementing the program, we would create a protective, if you like, veil from the markets, that we would be secure. So at least, even though it would be painful, we would be secured from the markets. And um, so... Throwing up at that point, going to a referendum might have uh, created more worries in the market. So there was a question of the markets there also. Uh, in the end, I felt when the second, when we had the second program, I said, "Okay, this is a second program. Uh, I need to have the, the legitimate mandate from our from our people." Finally, uh, um, on Golden Dawn, I think well, you mentioned again, uh, how do we get away from these these problems? Well, I think, I think it's, not, it's not simple, but there are three reactions to this crisis. And however painful, and I'm not trying to make it easy, there are two reactions which I think we have to, as Greeks, uh, get beyond. And some of these reactions are part of the fact that we have been country dependent for many years. We've been in wars. We've been in civil wars. We have been in, um, in under you know, puppet governments at times, dictatorships, and so on. The first is um, a reaction which I think we need to, to, to a psychology which we need to move, move out of is, oh, we can't do anything. It's our fate. You know? We Greeks, we always have these problems and so on. We have to, and that is basically being passive. The second reaction is the scapegoating. I'm not to blame, you're to blame. Kill that person, kill, you know, that politician, that migrant, that German, that whatever, you know, and everything will be solved. 
or the other side of the this, of this uh, is, and that's where you have the sort of neo-fascist groups and so on. Um, the other side of that coin is we are waiting for God to come and save us. So that's a very, very passive and insecure also position. The third, I think, is to see this crisis as a birth, painful but creative, but we all work collectively, and it may become a happy event, not now when it's painful, but we hope that it will be a happy event. So I think that's we need to bring back the hope that Greece can be successful. I know it's difficult after six years of recession, 60% youth unemployment, 27% loss of GDP, but one hopes we're at the tail end. Time for one last troika of questions. Uh, we'll start with yes, you, and then uh, you had your hand up first, and then the gentleman here. Sorry, if we could just start with the lady. Just, just, to, just down. The, yeah, sorry, right there with the green scarf. Um, thank you. Um, uh, good evening. Uh, thank you very much for your speech, sir. My name is Salma Rahim, and I'm doing my PhD at the Department of Management here at the LSE. Um, to take the conversation a little bit broader beyond the European Union, um, I, I remember you mentioned in your speech that we live in a globalized world, but we don't have a global governance mechanism. And so my question to you is, do you feel that one of the issues uh, which you mentioned as an obstacle being in a, a sort of unholy alliance between money and politics, this is a global problem. Um, in your experience so far, do you, you know, especially when you consider that some MNCs and organizations have more money than the collective GDPs of certain nations. So in your opinion, um, or with your experience, could you give, would you have an idea of how we can either develop a governance situation or at least how do we disentangle this unholy alliance? Thank you. Now, just behind you, yeah. With the, yeah and then you, sir, from... Hi, um, good evening. My name is Bernard, and I'm an alumni, class of 2007. So I agree with you that the adjustment in Greece has been very abrupt, but I also agree on your last point that it's like birth. Um, and I agree with most of your points that you made tonight, but I want to challenge you with one hypothesis. <laughs> Say the crisis hadn't happened, or Europe had said, take your time. Do you think... Uh, what the crisis has caused is that there's a lot of self-reflection now in Greece and politicians coming to justice which wouldn't have come otherwise. Do you think this would have happened if it weren't for the crisis or for the European intervention? I think it probably will have to be the last one right at the front there. Sorry, at the back. <coughs> Kalispera. Uh, Isaac Eripidis, I'm a Greek uh, correspondent based here in London. Uh, I have a question which passed me long time now. Dominique Strauss-Kahn, in a documentary about his life, which was commissioned uh, from the French uh, TV station Channel Plus, said once that you turned to him to ask for a help of the IMF mm. and not Angela Merkel. And actually, you turned to him twice, once before you became a prime minister and once after that in November, after you won the elections. And actually, he claims that you, told, you asked for his help, and he said to you that, uh, I don't think so, your Greek colleagues, your European colleagues will allow the IMF to go inside of Europe. And you told him that, don't worry, I will persuade them. 
Could you please confirm if that's true or not? And if what, finally it goes Angela Merkel. Where did you see that statement? Because I haven't made that statement. Did you see that no, statement? No, no. Oh, you're asking Dominique if I Dominique Strauss-Kahn said no, that in a documentary he about said his that life. I, that I would persuade my, my counterparts? Did that was what Dominique Strauss-Kahn I haven't seen that statement from Dominique Strauss-Kahn. It, I think it was broadcasting by Lazopoulos. Uh, Not that. Oh, well. Well. No, 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 no. Okay. So it's more, it's more it, comedy it, than, than No, it wasn't reality. comedy. It yes. was okay. Dominicus Camor Camera. It I was Dominicus Camor Camera. So the question is, is that true? Did you turn to the... Did I'll, you ask for a yes. help of the IMF? Thank you very much. Thank you for the question. Well, um, first of all, to get, I, I didn't. I think I didn't answer your question, um, lady from Pakistan. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll combine it with your question also. Um, we have global problems. So, for example, we have a global economy where there is huge concentration of wealth. That's something that now is more and more apparent. And it's not me. I'm not saying that because I'm head of the Socialist International. Maybe that's one reason, but that's not... It's just an objective fact. What has happened, however, that in the global economy, there are fewer regulations, and there's lack of transparency, and there are many ways for people to hide profits and wealth, which is concentrated and is so much, then that comes back to nations and can subvert politics. In the U.S., it's, I would call it legal corruption. It's called lobbying. Um, in other countries, it's outright corruption. It may be buying up media, but it certainly has subverted politics. And that is, I'm telling you from my personal experience, that that was one of the problems in Greece also. But it's a worldwide, now, a worldwide phenomenon. Now, countries that have strong democratic institutions have been able to resist and you have particularly the Nordic, the Scandinavian countries, and so on. I think, um, uh, who was it that wrote about between, a, uh, between two nations? One was Norway, the other was an African nation. I don't want to mention which one. Which one? The African nation had very weak uh, institutions, and of course, they both found oil around the same time, petroleum. Uh, in Norway, the money went for the public good, and the African nation went to the pockets of the ministers, and people became impoverished. So institutions do matter, and that's part of democracy. But national institutions can do only so much. So what kind of institutions do we need at a global level? I'll give you an example of the problem I faced. We were asked by banks to pay them back. However, the banks were helping many rich Greeks take their money out of Greece into tax havens at the same time. I went to Switzerland and I asked them to be transparent so that we could open up banking accounts. We changed the laws in Greece to open up banking accounts. We changed the laws to deal with um, not only politicians, but anyone who was, uh, so we could find people who were money laundering. And that is slowly being help, helping to clean out the system or change the, the mores of the system. Um, but if we don't have a concerted effort, and I put this to the European Council almost every time, from the very first day, actually, I went to the European Council, I want to deal with our deficit, but you help me deal with tax havens and uh, a global system which abets 
this type of tax avoidance. Uh, so there are there are ways to do this. Of course, um, there are there are groups like Transparency International, uh, publish what you pay, more transparency. But this is where Europe could play a much more major role, whether it's in the G8, whether it's in the G20, uh, which sometimes is called the G0 because it's very ineffective. But that's just show, showing. What, what the global, the global governance problem is. Not dealing with these issues, and I can add on to these climate change, I can add on to these a more robust and thoughtful way of dealing with migration. And rather than dealing with these issues, moving into a blame game, which is deeply prejudicial, creating stereotypes, this nation, that people, the gypsies, the Romanians, the Greeks, the southerners, the northerners, the austere punishers, and so on, that is not dealing with the real issues of globalization, the real issues we have to deal with. It does, however, help certain parties. And I would say it's not only the extreme right, but it is also the more moderate right that has catered to these feelings, that has catered to, unluckily, these sort of stereotypical xenophobic feelings. And that has undermined the European project because the European project was based and is based on the idea that that is not the problem. The problem is how we work together beyond our specific ethnicities, languages, heritages, former wars, work together in common. Uh, it is... So the, the, the fear of globalization and the and particularly for certain parts of our societies, which I would say, you know, working class, less educated, um, more, with more tendencies to be unemployed, they are the victim of this propaganda and this type of uh, jingoistic, if you like, politics. And that's where the, a lot of the base of these more extreme parties, even in the UK, I think you had a meeting just a few days ago here when people... Uh, we're talking about the uh, Euroscepticism and, uh, in the UK. And uh, from what I've read, there was very much around this issue that, you know, the not dealing with globalization. So Europe, I think, needs to go beyond this, to, 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 to break away from this blame game narrative again. Um, finally, uh, yes, the crisis, I, I will say, was an opportunity. <laughs> But again, I will say, it, you, can, you can bear so much pain. I mean, you can, at some point, people will start saying, well, uh, maybe it's too painful for me. Uh, and um, that's where I think we needed more support from, from, uh, from I'll just, I just, I said one very simple example, which didn't cost anything for, for our European partners. If there was a clear, clear sign from Europe at an early stage that Greece was not going to leave the Eurozone, there would not be the insecurity in Greece, which basically grounded our economy. One example, I had Qataris who wanted to invest $5 billion in our old airport to revamp it and bring in jobs. As soon as they heard that Greece might leave the Euro, they said, let's wait. So that that kind of a that kind of a, uh, a a Europe which was really much more forceful was could have been done, and still we would be monitored to to uh, 
and we had to get our, our loans, if you like, um, and so that was that was there. So I think that was it was yes, this was uh, an opportunity, but um, there was uh, an overdose of um, moralistic punishment for these uh, for these uh, Greek Southerners, if you like. Uh, finally, on Dominique Strauss-Kahn, there's been a lot of mythology and uh, and and and, and uh, conspiracy theories. That's something which. Um, uh, uh, countries that have gone through authoritarian rule um, uh, often often um, think that uh, there are these conspirators out there that deal with this. Well, I, I met with Dominique Strauss-Kahn as I met with many other people many times. First of all, I asked him for help, for technical help. I said, do you have people, we have, we have a state which we have to change. But the state itself has to make the changes, so we don't have the capacity. Do you have people? Actually, asked him. I asked uh, Barroso. Barroso actually created a task force under Reichenbach, who now is in Greece. The last two years, using Europe, using the best practices of all 27, 28 countries of the European Union, to look at different sectors: ease of doing business, e-governance, central government, uh, the land roster, um, health system, and so on, to really help us in our reforms. So this is the type of help I asked for. But the statements I made publicly are on record, where I said, I want a European solution. But if there is no European solution and the Europeans don't come to me, I have no other, no other path than to ask the IMF. There was no other way. So that Dominique Strauss-Kahn knew. But that was no conspiracy. That was just plain, you know, Plain reality. Europe had no mechanism. And not only that, but I'll add one other thing, which is sort of a, a um, an ongoing thing, that we, had, we could have asked for a haircut from the very beginning, a haircut of our, of our debt. Not one European country wanted a haircut in, uh, of, our, of our debt. Uh, I never received any formal or informal proposal in 2010, although I had discussed it um, from the, the IMF for any kind of a haircut. Uh, and not only that, but um, Jean-Claude Trichet, even as late as 2011, sent me a letter saying that uh, if you continue to discuss the idea of a haircut which we were doing, but not publicly, to relieve us from our debt, I may have to take measures to actually not help your banks. So it was very, very tough. And that was in, I think, April 2011. So there's a lot of conspiracy theory about how we handled this issue. What I would like to see is, and people should understand it, we had to take very difficult decisions under very difficult conditions. Yes. You see? God is telling us now that uh, it's time. Um, very difficult decisions under very difficult conditions at, at very difficult speeds for our democracies. We were able to, in the end, save Greece from bankruptcy, the euro from uh, an intensive care unit, but um, uh, I think we also need to see why we accrued the debt. Why any government in Greece would have to deal with such a big debt. That's what we have to answer. That's where our problems are. And dealing with those problems will make Greece a sustainable economy 
and give hope to the future generation, to your generation. Uh, many of you are Greeks here, and I do hope that what we have done, although painful, will in the end be in our common interest and particularly in the interest of the next generation. Thank you very much.